Welcome to this episode of Views from Down Underer. I am Alex Tan, your host uh, for the program, and together with me today is uh, Neil Van Vary, uh, Orson Tan, and June Espia. Uh, all of us are in different places today. Uh, so again, thank you for technology for bringing us together. Uh, today, what we're going to talk about is a, an article that was published in October 19th uh, edition of uh, Foreign Affairs. And the title of this paper is called The New Economic Security State, How the Risking Will Remake Geopolitics. The two authors is uh, Professor uh, Henry Farrell from Johns Hopkins University and Abraham uh, Newman from Georgetown University. Essentially, this paper is commenting about uh, the recent uh, uh, speech uh, uh, by the National Security Advisor, actually, it was to 20, 2023 April, uh, when Jake Sullivan um, expounded a little bit about economics and the relationship between national security and economics. So, and then all of a sudden, this talk about uh, is this a new form of industrial organization and industrial structure in the United States, wherein now uh, there will be a better balance between economics and security and what have you, and uh, this idea about industrial policy making in the United States. So, uh, so today we'll just gonna chat a little bit about it. Uh, you know, to be honest, you know, this concept of industrial policy, this discussion of industrial policy in the United States is nothing new. Um, in the 1970s and 1980s, when the United States was competing. Uh, uh, in effect with Japan, and Japan was very, very successful and becoming, uh, um, there was uh, talk about the uh, Japan being number one, right? I mean, the, the Japan being the largest economy in the world, the possibility of that. Uh, a lot of scholars and policymakers have been studying about Japan's industrial policy. So you can, you can, you would recall some of the books by one book by Ezra Vogel with the title "Japan is Number One," you know, and then there are works about uh, studies about uh, what do you call this Japan's in uh, and East Asia in general's industrial policy making, uh, uh, like, for example, people like Clyde Prestowitz, who was a trade negotiator, United States trade negotiator, has been talking about the United States should look into industrial policy making. Uh, for the longest time, right? So there are these, it's not, it's not anything new, uh, but I, this paper that came out really caught our attention and, and I guess we can comment about it and then just chat and share our ideas ar uh, around this. And is it possible? Is it possible for the United States to do this? Uh, you know, if it was easy, it would have been done already. So obviously it's, it's not. And, uh, are there challenges going forward for the United States? What are the challenges for the global economy as well? You know, uh, and what's the impact for us in New Zealand when, when, when now there's this new idea about uh, security and state and economics, right? So, um, chime in, guys, chime in. I think the first thing that comes to mind when we talk about or when you hear. Jake Sullivan talk about economic security and the need for there to be uh, to be a greater understanding amongst the policy establishment in the 
American branches of, of government of how intertwined economics is with national security, you get this sense that this is a global hegemon that is being overstretched. They, they, they are no longer capable of just throwing money at problems wherever you know whether it's the security problems or, or or the economic challenges that that come their way it's it's no longer a matter of either out out consuming out spending uh their closest rivals they now have to un- they now have to have a deeper consideration of you know we have sponsored this global economic system or the the global capitalist system that's that is in place in the world today and we have created the environment in which the great power competition is now working but we also have our limitations that we need to be aware of and how do we deal with it that's that i mean that's the sense i get it's almost like a uh kind of like a acknowledgement that there is a certain weakness to this hegemon june well to to be fair though uh i haven't heard of a hegemon or its closest approximations that have not been described as either overstretch or starting to implode uh, from within. And, and I think this is uh, part of the prize that, that any country that's seeking hegemony uh, is willing to, to, to be able to pay for. Uh, but the challenges currently that's facing the United States are, are unique in a sense that, you know, as the article points out, uh, on the one hand, you have to balance keeping the global economy as intact as possible, while also entangled uh, in a inextricable link with China. And on the one hand, there are emerging as well as existing security threats that you have to deal with. Uh, my 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 argument on this is that uh, institutions in the United States are simply not prepared to take on this prescription at the moment. Um, and from the institutionalist point of view, on the one hand, uh, we can agree that if you change the rules and if you establish uh, what is being proposed here as a economic council of sorts, uh, you might change in the medium run, in the long run, the behavior of, of policymakers and even the public in general. But there are institutions that are deeply ingrained in America that gravitate against this. And on the one hand, um, we see that there is some strong entanglement between the economy and security in America, but only in one area. And that's the military industrial complex. Outside of that, you know, yeah. they want to do things on their own. And there's a, there's a reason for that. It's deeply ingrained in the American psyche that if the state intervenes in the economy, then that this big government, big government is bad. And that's something that Republicans and the Democrats can agree on I, uh, I... To, to, to a large extent. So um, that is the one, I think the one major uh, problem that this kind of proposal is going to encounter is that within the establishment itself and within the public, um, you will find it very hard to sell the idea that the state is going to intervene in the economy. Unless, of course, it's the American state intervening in favor of American companies versus foreign companies. Then they like that. Well, I think you made a very good point um, in the sense that 
that change of institutions takes time. And I think what, what brings me back to is a point that Professor Tan made when he was talking about industrial policy, particularly in relation to Japan, but East Asia more widely. I mean, certainly in the literature and political economy, we keep hearing about how um, not necessarily easy, but simplified it was in a way for East Asia to implement that kind of industrial policy. And that goes, I suppose, that 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 what that reminds me of is the challenge that you have in a democracy from an institutional perspective to try and adopt industrial policy to that extent and make it work. But what you also brought, what you also referred to, June, was essentially an ideational element that just beyond institutions and the complexity of implementing those, institution, those institutions in a democratic system like the US, which makes it different from the East Asian uh, economy, Ideationally, there is also that point of big government and small government in America, which also has political consequences. It's essentially a cleavage which will, on which both parties fundamentally disagree. Now, you have the ideational view, you have the institutionalist element here, but you also have the phenomenon of interest groups, and that being at play, the role of state business relations. You could again draw a fundamental difference between how that worked in the East Asian context where, you, where the state had a certain level of autonomy, was insulated from those pressures of business. But that, that, that certainly isn't the case in democracies. And again, we see that time and again um, in the U.S. context as well. It's great points you raise, guys. And, and, and I think, uh, yeah, you are absolutely correct. Uh, the structures and institutions are so ingrained uh, in, in American politics that, that for that to change, you're essentially asking... Uh, Amer- you, you're asking them to change their DNA. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a it's very ingrained in American DNA. This uh, you guys mentioned that, right? Uh, that it actually only works in the military industrial complex, wherein you know there's this agency called DARPA yep. uh, and that that uh, you know has developed a lot of uh, creative and innovative things, and then with industri- uh, military use first, and then slowly becoming industrial use. But then at the same time, when you know, when when you look at how the countries that have been successful in using industrial policy, when you look at the way their political decision making and economic policy making is done and how they coordinate that through, uh, it seems to me that uh, these countries tend to have much more corporatist type of uh industrial policy making and uh what do you call this interest art uh aggregation and interest representation right so the interest uh they tend to be much more corporatist uh like in japan for example uh you know uh you know they don't use the word zaibatsu they use the words keiretsus mm-hmm. uh these these companies that are big right uh coordinate with the government and the government has somehow a big coordination with them um, and very corporatist. Germany is the same, right? Germany is quite corporatist in yep. the way they do things as well. But American interest group, uh, generally in Anglo-American democracies, the type of interest group representation tends to be described as best is pluralist, mm-hmm. right? So it's much more free for all and all of that. There's another aspect to this. In the case of East Asia anyway, in the case of East Asia, and even if you look, if, if we're going to say that China today has some kind of uh, industrial policy like Japan, like Taiwan, like South Korea, you will also notice that in these 
tiger economies, labor has very weak representation. Yep. Incredibly weak. And as a result, as a result, uh, government uh, can push this much harder. The policies can push it, can push it much harder because they do not have the blowback from labor because yep. labor, labor strength is much more suppressed. Uh, and how does that work uh, in the U.S. when the Democratic Party, as such, is represents that side, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I think it'll be quite interesting, guys. Well, it's it's that point about getting the buy-in, isn't it? From I mean, if you're trying to push a particular industrial policy, again in the East Asian context, it's made much easier because not only is the state does this, does the state have this central role in which it's arbitrating between interest groups in which it's deciding and picking winners and losers but also um it's easy to get buy in because you don't have the volatility of democratic politics you don't have that element where you have parties cajoling for different interest groups and i think that makes it slightly more complicated in the us context and you can see that playing out in America that, that you know, on one end you had, for a particular point in time, U.S. generals and Blinken being slightly more in, you know, pushing for de-risking and decoupling before that. But Janet Yellen and the Treasury Secretary and the Treasury Department being very, very keen to still go to China. And you can see that divergence there playing out as well. Yeah, it, uh, it reminds me of one question that uh, this uh, South Korean colleague asked me a few years ago about why is the Philippines like this? And I think uh, my answer was that uh, in, in, in democratic systems, as far as democratic the Philippines is, and I think this applies to the United States, is you have a totally different time frame in so far as administrations are concerned, which you don't really consider so much when you think about East Asia or, or Russia, for that matter, or, or, or China, for that matter. Um, there's a possibility of administration and therefore policy change every four years or so in the U.S. And that's something that that's not only considered by the interest groups, but also people within the establishment uh, and the way which they choose which poli policies to to prioritize. But I also have, would have to say that it's not totally that American economic interests are against state intervention. They love state intervention on two things. A, when it helps them better compete with foreign industries. Yep. Or secondly, when they want to deal with labor groups yep. that are on, on things like, you know, better salaries and all these benefits and so on. They're not totally against state inter intervention. And, and that said, I think that one possibility of, of pushing this, this agenda forward is to to, is to is to frame this in the way uh, previous policymakers have framed this at the time when when Americans have in fact accepted state interventionism this much, and that's during wartime, unfortunately. But there's also right? there's also that's, another point. That's, to this, that's uh, exactly, to... exactly the point, right? Because I was going to say yeah. that when you mentioned the the military industry complex, everyone goes back to Eisenhower's farewell speech where he warns about the mm -hmm. risks of the military industry complex mm. and all that. But what we fail to recognize is that the cardinal values of the American system is structured towards a certain kind of thing. I read somewhere today, I think was some uh, somebody on, on Twitter was commenting about the fact that America is built for one thing and America is built for war. When it comes to pandemics, economic crisis, uh, 
when it, uh, educational <laughs> crisis, health crisis, they can't do, they can't handle it. But when it comes to war, suddenly the whole American economy, economic machine just gets into gear and boom, they, they, they are able to handle it. And, you know, it goes back to what we talked about in the previous episode when we brought up this idea of cardinal values of a political system. So this uh, yeah. Steve Chan from the University of Colorado in Boulder, he talks about how every single government has basically has to to vet has three cardinal values that they 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 have to choose between and they have to to negotiate and navigate to balance but they have to balance the three values are economic growth political order and military security and clearly from the united states point of view sorry is that you know, we know what the American system is geared towards. You know, it's highly skewed. If you think of a, a, a triangle, it's highly skewed towards that military security because that's what they're good at. And why is that? Yeah. Because the one thing that dragged the American asses out of Great Depression, out of the, the, <laughs> the, the throes of, 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 of poverty that they were in, was the war. It's war. Yeah. 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 In, 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 to piggyback on uh, what Orson has mentioned, is this issue that... You know, when you look at this, uh, the cardinal values of growth, order, and security, if we imagine a pan, a triangular pan, and you put a marble right in the middle of that pan, right? So for, for any political leader, regardless of whether you're in a liberal society or an illiberal society where you're democracy or non-democracy, you still need to balance that, right? So where do you balance that pan? How do you, how do you hold that pan in order to make sure that you're maximizing all three values, right? So if you tip it on one side and it goes one way, then you may be sacrificing something, right? So a heavy emphasis on security could could sacrifice economy because it used to be, remember, remember there is this uh, tons of research uh, in international relations on what is called the political economy of defense, yep. right? So the defense economic studies. Yep. So, and there are studies, a colleague of mine, uh, uh, a uh, classmate of mine and, and Steve Chan, in fact, was yes. quite uh, big on this study of so-called guns versus butter mm -hmm. or, you know, the so-called uh, defense economics uh, and economics trade-off. So that's one aspect. But I want to pick up on, June what you mentioned also that it's actually nothing new for Americans uh, with regards to intervention. Remember that the, those days were in... Were in uh, Japan was selling lots of cars to the United States yeah. and, and, and Chrysler was getting in trouble. Ford was getting in trouble. You know, uh, 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 Chevrolet, GM was getting in trouble. And then all of a sudden, the United States used essentially uh, politics, right? They used politics to solve some of these problems. Mm -hmm. One of them is to force Japan on this super 301 trade thing that if you do not if you do not take care of that we will impose you know tariffs on your cars and stuff yep. like that and so what happened was that japan came up with this really interesting called uh what do they call it uh, uh, a voluntary export restraint mm -hmm. so so japan restrained restrained exporting more cars to the united states uh, but it did not stop american appetite you know, for Japanese cars, right? So over time, uh, Toyota and Honda and Nissan started, and even Mercedes and, and, and BMW started setting up shop in the United States, right? So they have uh, factories in the United States. They tried to help Chrysler. 
if you would re remember those times when Chrysler was really in big trouble, mm -hmm. they tried to help Chrysler survive, right? But there are two issues there. Uh, under intense market competition, at the end of the day, it is still about the quality of the product that you can produce, number one, mm -hmm. and whether there will be buyers for the product that you are producing, right? Mm -hmm. So Chrysler at that point in time, with given so much help, still did not survive because the product that they produce is not the, the markets are reacting to it, mm -hmm. right? For And, and that's, the, that's one of the reasons. I mean, so one of the issue with this industrial policy uh, or if the United States decides to do that, in America, in the U.S., one of the early debates about, you know, when we're talking about industrial policy in the 80s, right, uh, when Prestowitz, uh, uh, James Fallows, you know, all the writers of new in the East Asian industrialism and, and what have you, one of the biggest debates, and this goes into, again, the DNA of the American body politic, yeah. is this. So who gets to choose Who's the winner? Who gets to choose the champions, <laughs> right? And in America, they don't like that. You yeah. know, the United States wants it to be, we have to let, let the market decide. Let the market decide, you know, let the, best, let the best team be the champion. Do not tell us what industry it is going to be, mm -hmm. right? And honestly, honestly, in, we can, I think all of us can agree that it is because of that 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 United States remains one of the most creative and innovative economies in yep. the world, yep. right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's because of that ability to be flexible in market. Yep. And it was free of uh, very organized economics in a way. It's, 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 the, it's, a it's the idea of, of how chaos can, can, can cre create the space for creativity, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. In a way, it's like that, right? So, will so if when we go, when the United States try to emulate too much what Japan is doing or what Germany is doing, will it then cut out that creative space that yes. that the economy was known for in all these how many eighty years of uh, post eighty years now, right? Yep. Uh, Seventy years of uh, post uh, Second World War years. Yeah, uh, th that's true. And in fact, there are still certain sectors of the United States where centralized economic planning or the idea of that could get you to become red tagged. <laughs> yes. It could be labeled communist. But but the, the article also raises an important point that there are, in fact, areas where if we continue with the status quo, that the United States will become increasingly vulnerable. And the one area that I really see here is the area of, of, of cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about technology and cybersecurity, where does it really sit? Is it security? Is it economy? A lot of the things that we run now go through tech. And so and then we see manifestations of this in how the TikTok issue was dealt with. Mm -hmm. We see manifestations of this in how the Huawei 5G issue was dealt with. And we see manifestations of this as well with how they tried to uh, play around the uh, Taiwan chip issue as well. So uh, there is, of course, a vulnerability. Uh, in certainly in these areas more than others, if if even the United States continues in its current uh, status quo of silos between yeah. uh, economics and security, I think that the, then the, the next... interesting thing. Of, 
Go ahead, Orson. The next question would be, you know, the article talks about the need to have this better linkage between the the security apparatus and the economic apparatus. But what are the tools available for them? Because I, I think what we haven't mentioned as well, or we've kind of mentioned it, but haven't stated it quite clearly, is that the fact that America is facing this situation where they are stuck in a global economy that is so intertwined with everyone else and so interdependent between all these, these other states and with the supply chain issues and all that is that the dynamics of the international market is very different. It's very different from the mm. 80s. It's very, very different from even pre-2008. Yeah. You know? So- yeah, and, and, and interesting thing, uh, guys, uh, uh, I, I just want to, again, pick up on what all of you have been saying also is the with regards to the vulnerabilities. There's something quite interesting about this vulnerability uh, issue. And I'll, uh, and then uh, remind me again later uh, to talk a little bit about actually who got to be benefit, who got to benefit mm-hmm. from globalization after all, right? So when you think of the vulnerability, uh, and an example would be uh, the semiconductor issue, right? So, so think of the uh, semiconductors are mainly produced by two countries in the world. Right, two, two yep. countries in the world. Uh, the large, uh, the largest uh, chip manufacturers are Taiwanese mm-hmm. and Koreans. Yep. So the two, essentially, you get pretty much all. Right. Uh, the Japanese don't produce a lot. Uh, uh, the U.S. certainly not, uh, uh, and then uh, the Europeans don't either. Now, when you think of these so-called vulnerabilities and the way the narrative is coming out now that oh, uh, supply chain vulnerability. We have security problem because China is going to, the competitor, the strategic competitor holds much of the whatever uh, control, so to speak. But it actually did not start that way. Yeah. You know, if you, if you notice, the semiconductor industries, really, the big players, are, you know, within the American friendship group, so yes. to speak. Right? They are American allies, South Korea, they're mm-hmm. Taiwan, right? But... Because of globalization, these companies who are, you know, your your friends, you you trade with your friends anyway, but their friends decide that in order to make money, they have to put it in a cheap production place. They they specialize. That's how how the yeah, yeah. That's how the that's how the that's how the vulnerability came through. It's Mm -hmm. not because that it's not you know TSMC is still TSMC. It's still a Taiwanese company. Yep. Right. I mean the Korean. Uh, Samsung or what have you, there's, uh, sorry, Taiwanese company, TSMC, a Taiwanese company, Samsung, a Korean company, they are located in your allies. Yeah. They're your friends, right? So so then then you have a, another added issue, right? The added issue is, is that, you know, when we talk about friend shoring, so does the industrial policy and then you trade, so are you now telling the Dutch manufacturer of these chip, you know, precision machines that no, you can't sell to who. But if they're not selling to China and they're selling to Taiwan or selling to Korea, yep. the Korean and the Taiwanese manufacturers are still challenged to find a market to produce it cheaply so that it can get into an iPhone, you yep. know, because the manufacturers of these products are they're the intermediary producers and their profit is squeezed by the buyer and by the buyer of the ultimate product and as well as 
companies, the tech companies in the U.S. who wants maximum profit, mm -hmm. right? Which brings me to this other part of globalization part. The story that we have heard so far is that globalization has been bad for America, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, you, we, we cannot have this free-flowing thing already. But one thing that the article never mentioned is the fact that all throughout this globalization period, America continue to rack up the most number of billionaires, mm -hmm. right? Yep. They have the number of billionaires are incredible. Apple, American companies are sitting on trillions of dollars. And I think uh, we, we know the statistics, right? Just add Elon Musk, right? Uh, Jeff, as, Bezos. Uh, Jeff Bezos and just add uh, Warren Buffett. Yep. Okay. And uh, one more, Bill Gates, yep. right? The four of them are larger than many economies in the world. In fact, just for our listen for our listeners, if you add if you add the wealth of these four billionaires, they're larger than New Zealand's economy. Mm -hmm. Right? So when we talk about this, right? When we talk about, oh, it doesn't benefit. No. The only thing is, is that because right now China is also catching up in the number of billionaires. <laughs> right? But what America has failed to address is, is, is that actually American companies and American billionaires, the rich in America, have definitely benefited from the globalization that America pushed. Yes. The problem is America's economic structure, that so-called trickle-down type economics, right? It failed the average people. Mm -hmm. It's the average people that lost their job. It's the, it's the, it's the increasingly shrinking middle class. It's the, the lower quintiles, right? The, the lower quintiles workers. of your, yeah, the factory workers. They're the one being replaced. Even if you're in the lower middle class group. So if you, if we, if we have quartile, uh, sorry, quintile uh, 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 one, quintile two, quintile three, quintile four, and quintile five, certainly four and five have not benefited. Mm -hmm. Three is increasingly slipping, yep. right? Two is challenge, but one is consolidating their wealth. So you have the situation of 10% of America owns 90% of the wealth. So, so where did that wealth come from? That wealth came from the globalization that America underwrote. Mm -hmm. So you have, they have to address that issue because in any system that you will do, and particularly now, if you actually move into an industrial policy making, the lessons from, from, from countries like South Korea is that the companies will have more say because now you're picking champions. And, and in South Korea, you now have companies that actually are not only horizontally integrated, they're vertically, vertically. vertically integrated. So you have companies, multinational companies in South Korea, Korean chables that manufacture cars, manufacture computers, are in construction, yep. but they also produce food products yep. and own and also own convenience stores. So do you want that? Right? It, it will solidify the problems of rich and 
it will you know solidify and consolidate the problems or makes it worse exacerbate uh, the distribution of income it's part of the lesson that we learned from the great financial crisis right when we had the bailout of the banks what happened when the bailout was given was that the expectation was the when you bail out the banks the money is given to them and that will trickle trickle down to the to the ordinary the savings accounts of the ordinary ordinary you know bank customers and help them out but that never happened you know you know we you watch things like the big short and all the those kind of like movies too big to fail is another good movie and they talk about how a year after obama signed the the bail the financial bailout you know uh executive bonus at at the top investment banks were skyrocketing again like 40% growth or something like that how do you stop that kind of thing you know it's it's it we we it goes back to that what what june mentioned about how like the american system seems to be just like designed to to inculcate that kind of thing it's like what you said as well you know uh, a a a a system of chaos that doesn't doesn't you know doesn't or is quite res- resilient or resistant to a uh, uh, idea of organization in that sense and and how yeah. how do you then how do you navigate that so I, again i asked the question does america actually have the tools available to it both dom- domestically and internationally to to navigate this this challenge that they're facing because i think you know part you know if i jump in just quickly and then i'll turn to to june you know the question that you ask is 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 true i mean uh it's the very you guys have mentioned it it's the very nature of the american economy and 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 part of the strength and the attraction of the american economy as well right is that it's the dna so you're asking essentially i i I totally get what Jake Sullivan is saying. I totally get what this article is saying. But like, like what I said in the introduction, it's not new. The debate in the debate about industrial policy and the balance of these triangular, you know, uh, uh, the cardinal values that yep. Orson mentioned a while ago, has always been there in the United States, right? But why hasn't it been done? Because it is difficult to change your DNA. You know, I mean. By, 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 by changing your DNA, do you lose the very thing that made America, America? You know, the very thing that made the United States one of the robust economies in the world yeah. was, did it, I mean, so, so how do you change that? How do you change the fact that America is, you know, uh, have very strong lobbies? You know, I mean, there's, I, I, I remember in the 1990s, the, there was this. Uh, I read it somewhere. A trivial. It's a. It's a trivia pursuit kind of. There are more lawyers in Washington D.C. alone than the whole of France. <laughs> you know. So so what do the lawyers do? You know, essentially they're all lobbyists. Yeah. You know, many of them are working for lobbyists, and and the strength of pluralistic interest groups. You know, would would make the implementation of this industrial policy quite challenging. That's my view. June. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's true. I, I don't think it's a question of tools. The tools are there if they would want to use it. And that's precisely the point. They don't want to use it for both political and other reasons primarily. You know, uh, for a four-year administration, it's political suicide to <laughs> impose any sort of industrial policy. It's not that they haven't done so. Uh, I think Two world wars and the Cold War are illustrative that 
for a very short term, you can. But then again, you have to think about the overall structure of American firms as well. Uh, Americans in general, I don't think, like the idea of big conglomerates that we see in, in, in East Asia and, and the rest of the world. Yeah, most the, of is the Robert Barron pro problem again. Yeah, most, most of what you would see are limited liability companies. Mm -hmm. And in, in that sense, it's a lot harder, therefore, to, for lack of a better term, to make them toe the line simply because there's too many of them. <laughs> They're relatively small in, 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 in scale. Uh, and and um, because of the the nature of the global economic system, then um, how do you stop them from behaving where something gives them advantages of scale and a better you know a better profit margin elsewhere? Do, can you stop them from going to places like China or India or the Philippines or somewhere where cheap where labor is cheap or economic regulations are weak? And uh, where the, the bottom line is, is the, the profit margin will still be bigger than they would well, have there. Well, it's one of those things, isn't it? It's, I think, industrial policy, but also economic policy more generally, at the end of the day, uh, political decisions with social consequences. And you can see all that at play with the almost like an ideational path dependency in a way. You've, you know, the, the power of pluralist interest groups, this attachment to a small state. Add to that problems of um, prevailing institutions and how they've operated in these silos in a way, as the article mentions. And then, of course, the challenge that, that's being posed by interest groups and how they interact with democratic politics. You know, if you were to draw a different triangle in a way, you can, you can map these challenges in terms of where America is and America's economic structure is. And I think that tells us a fair bit about what's currently happening in this emerging debate of economics and security. And the other thing that strikes me, of course, is, well, we also have to consider to a certain degree the role of U.S. allies here. I mean, you know, the American establishment is looking at these problems, but, you know, that also implies that U.S. allies have also figured out that there is a problem at bay here. And much like the 80s example, which Professor Tan mentioned earlier, America's solutions to these problems are not necessarily solutions which go down well with their allies at, at every given point in time. So if you were the EU, if you were an economy that also is very close to the US, how are you going to look at all this? Uh, and I suspect that maybe with a certain degree of trepidation and apprehension. Um, I, I think that's... In a, to a certain degree. Yeah, what, what Neil was saying is right, because I'll, that was the next question I was going to ask, because what does that mean for us, New Zealand, small state, you know, highly, op very open economy, highly dependent on trade. We we are that little, uh, in Singapore, we call it the sampan, you know, the little riverboat that, that is, you know, we're going to be caught by the waves and we go wherever the waves bring us. And, you know, if the United States needs to re-look re its policy toolkit and, and use some of its older World War One, World War Two, uh, even Cold War, uh, legislation legislations to 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 rejig the way they they deal with their their economy and they think about security as well. That's gonna have a knock on effect, a uh, sort of like almost a uh, it's gonna create waves throughout the global economy that's gonna hit us. And how do we sustain? How how do we sustain ourselves then? What 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 do we do as a small state to to counteract against 
or, or to or to hedge against these future challenges? Well, I think there is. I mean, if we read the the recent foreign policy assessment statement, which which the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade released, uh, um, there was the mention of the fact that well. That this open trading world that we've relied on, that that's no longer the case. There is that uh, ideological challenge to free trade, certainly encapsulated by the Trump administration. But again, the Biden administration has not sort of weed away or moved away from that uh, course of action either. And I think New Zealand has its own sort of challenge in this instance because Chris Hipkins was talking about spreading your eggs in different economic baskets. I mean, the challenge for us is, and <laughs> this is where, again, the U.S. comes your... <laughs> in. Sorry? I thought you were going to say his famous uh, spreading your... Uh, was it? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> well, he said spreading your eggs in different, in, in different economic baskets. I mean, again, if that was the case, America being the hegemon still, so far, despite the Indo-Pacific economic framework, has not fundamentally offered market access, either to New Zealand or to those Pacific Island nations who need it the most. I mean, on one end, you want to, in a way, make your presence felt in the region to, to, to counter China to a certain degree, yet you're not offering that carrot, a carrot that actually countries in the region, including New Zealand, can bite on. You know, talking about pillars of IPEF in terms of... Um, non-market access provisions isn't going to go far in the region. Yep. The second problem for New Zealand is this. Apart from dairy and meat and primary industries, what are we actually offering to the wider world out there? So in terms of trade and economic resiliency, even if you want to move away to a new potential market, doing that in that sector, which is always the most protected, is going to increase the challenges that you're going to face in terms of doing that. Mm -hmm. So... For us, it's also a question of our own economic structure here. And how do we make yeah. that a little more resilient? Yeah. How do we diversify? Spreading yeah. your yeah. eggs is not just spreading your eggs to different countries. It's also spreading your, spreading your eggs in terms of the different sectors in which you try and build a new competitive advantage. I think that's... I think, that, that's... I think one, of the, one of the fears uh, uh, of this discussion of new economic security, uh, mind you, guys... Uh, that this idea is not just an American idea. You would, you know, the PRC is also thinking the same. You know, they are an economic security state already as such, you know. But what's uh, the implication of the, la the largest economy in the world uh, that has uh, uh, for a long time uh, really underwrote uh, the free trade regime and underwrote globalization as such. And let me reiterate again, who actually benefited the most from globalization uh, is this. So is the new economic security state become uh, becoming what we will, what we might term uh, great power protectionism, right? So is this a new term now? It's just sexier to call it new economic security state, but the behavioral impact, right? The, mm -hmm. the consequence of this is actually great power competition is now becoming also economic protectionism. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then trading partners of these great powers really have to find a way to, shall we say, de-risk Right, uh, we or CYA. Uh, let me use that word. You know, we need to cover our asses. You know, uh, in, in a way, because if the two great powers are not offering us any more markets, where do we find markets? 
right? And 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 that would become an issue. And and if everything is security, then food is security. Yep. So could it be that 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 would starting to become a very protected market? And then New Zealand's and Neil, you brought up it properly in prior programs. The very industrial structure of New Zealand, because of our less complex uh, industrial structure, the more limited products of our industrial structure. Uh, actually becomes a constraint on our ability to to be more secure you know in in a way so so because we are you know we product when we where we're, we're when we're less complex then there's likelihood that we could be less resilient you know yep. and then and then the other challenge for us guys uh going back to orson's uh, point on the cardinal values for the longest time we have not spent much on security mm-hmm. we value order we value economics, right? But the world today is pushing us and the documents that the government has come out with is poking, putting, pushing us towards a little bit more balancing towards the security side. Yep. So remember that triangle, if you move away from, you know, mm-hmm. if you want to be in the middle, right, to balance all three, it means to say you're moving away from certain things. Mm-hmm. So, so if we're going to emphasize from security, where does it take out from, right? Uh, uh, it's going to come at an economic cost. There will be economic costs, right? I mean, welfare programs would have to be reduced in order to give some money here. Unless, I don't know, I mean, uh, uh, does any of us recall seeing uh, our local trees growing money? No. So... <laughs> If we don't, if our local trees don't grow money, uh, I think money has to come someplace else, right? And there are only a couple of ways it could come, right? It can come by taxes. It can come with our export revenues in the country's revenues, right? Uh, or we have to cut spending somewhere else yeah. in order to balance the books, right? And politically, <laughs> that is difficult as well. So. I think that's the what we've been talking about this whole podcast actually ties into the the underlying theme of all our episodes so far. The the understanding that, like you said last week when we were talking about a, a middle power security structure in the Indo-Pacific, that it's only a bit able to exist if it's allowed by the great powers. You know, this that's right. it reminds me of that the the John Wick movies where he's he they say, you know, everybody <laughs> exists under the table, right? And they live yeah. to serve the table. For us, you know, in our world, we have the great powers, and everyone exists in the in the vacuum that they they leave behind underneath them. And for yeah. for for our listeners, that's what they need to understand that we are this tiny little nation called New Zealand at the corner of the world, trying to navigate the waves of the steps that uh you know every time every time the great power moves you know or like you know when the dragon sneezes the world catches the flu right yeah you know that's the thing that's that's what that's the underlying theme and exactly what we're talking about right now how do we as 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 a vulnerable extremely vulnerable state make the hard choices that need to be made to protect ourselves yeah and and it's really a reminder. It's really a reminder that uh, we talk about this in our international relations classes. That you know, the underlying you know realist perspective of international relations. We're in at the end of the day, uh, uh, it's power centric. It's very state centric, right? And the assumption that uh, uh, 
international relation and international politics is quote unquote anarchic because you know uh there's no such thing as one world government that organizes the whole thing yeah. and states have to find a way have to find a way to to manage those relationships in order to make themselves resilient makes themselves secure you know uh allow for their own economic growth and development so uh, yeah, so that's, I think, uh, I recommend our, call, our our listeners to read that piece uh, 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 on the new economic security state of foreign affairs. Uh, foreign affairs. But when you do read it, uh, uh, you know, uh, to our listeners, my advice is, is that do not read that in isolation. I would suggest that you read other works that have been done uh, in the 80s as well by Clyde Prestowitz, by James Fallows as cases in point, Ezra Vogel, when he talks about Japan as number one, uh, and other readings uh, with regards to the developmental state. You know, some of some of uh, the pieces that I've, I've done on political economy, uh, uh, you know, would be a nice reading on why, what these countries have done and, and the effect on society as such. So, so it sounds really sexy, uh, but maybe uh, uh, in future episodes, we may come back and revisit the so-called new economic security state, that it's not just a new term for great power protectionism. <laughs> so uh, with that, uh, I want to thank uh, our listeners again for uh, joining us today. Uh, and uh, lots of very interesting thing coming out. And uh, we would uh, definitely be on the lookout for interesting topics to share with you guys. So thank you. Uh, thank you again. Please remember to subscribe and uh, recommend us to your friends and family and whoever care to uh, understand about the Indo-Pacific affairs from the views of our region. Thank you. Thank you.